This is the Hyperallergic Podcast. I'm Harag Vartanian. It was Thanksgiving weekend in the United States. I was at the Osheti Sakawan camp adjacent to the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. I was at one of the three front lines as thousands of people gathered to challenge the multi-billion dollar Dakota Access Pipeline, which is being pushed by oil interests. The pipeline is set to be constructed under the Missouri River, which is the lifeblood of this scenic region of rolling hills and rivers. The pipeline was originally planned to cross the Missouri north of Bismarck, North Dakota's capital, but the city, which is majority white, protested for fear that it would, ironically, contaminate their water supply. The government pushed the pipeline downriver towards Standing Rock. I was in the midst of over 100 water protectors and allies who had gathered by a riverbank as music played, people held banners, and the occasional police bullhorn screamed ominous warnings like this one. It was a surreal setting. The water protectors, who prefer if you don't call them protesters, worry that if the pipeline leaks, it would destroy this delicate ecosystem and end the local Native American way of life. This looming catastrophe would impact some of the largest Indian reservations in the country. In that camp, the largest of the three, is a prominent art camp. Dozens of artists and volunteers are silk screening, producing work, and other things. Among those artists is Chanupe, who grew up at Standing Rock. I spoke to him along with three of his artist friends from New Mexico and the Bay Area who had joined him there at his request. This is the second in a series by Hyperallergic on the standoff at Standing Rock. We're presenting this in a raw, rough-cut version because of the looming deadline of December 5th. Why December 5th? The Standing Rock leader said that the U.S. Army Corps will be clearing the camp. Two days later, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers clarified and said they won't be forcibly removing anyone, but they're going to be ticketing and arresting individuals, which seems a little nebulous, to be quite honest. This interview happened just hours before that deadline was announced. You can hear the edited version of the first podcast in the series on iTunes or SoundCloud, but we thought because of the historic nature of this event, it was really important to release this raw conversation and allow Native American artists and their allies to share their thoughts in full. My name is Raven Chacon. I'm uh, based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm from the Navajo Nation, and uh, most of my work is in sound and as a composer and also as an installation artist. My name is Chinupa Hanska Luger. Uh, I'm based out of New Mexico as well, but I was born here in Standing Rock, about 30 miles south of the camp in Fort Yates, North Dakota. I am primarily a sculptor, um, do a lot of installation work, and work primarily with clay. My name is Dylan McLaughlin. I'm from the Navajo Nation as well, uh, living in San Francisco. Um, I work as a filmmaker and a video artist. My name is Jesse Hazlip. I'm from Southern California. My Indian name given to me by Chinupa is Payless OK Fingers. Uh, I'm not Wasichu. Uh, I am a visual artist. I do all my work based around human rights, and I'm here to be of help. So I guess that leads to my question of like, why are you here? 
you know, what, what made you come here and uh, be part of this? Well, um, I came uh, because my friend Chinupa invited me to come. Uh, and he's from here, but I, I really came just to uh, observe and, and find out what was happening, you know, firsthand instead of relying on the internet or Facebook, because everything I'd been seeing, it, it some of it didn't make sense. So I just really wanted to to be here, to be another indigenous person amongst the global community here, uh, because I hope that, you know, the same global community would support uh us in the southwest when when this same type of thing happens and it probably is going to happen especially you know pertaining to water so uh so more than anything i really i really wanted to come and observe and the way i do that is is by you know with field recordings and so a lot of what i've been doing here i guess uh you know as we as artists we constantly make work when we can was is just to to record everything that I was hearing, especially yesterday out at Turtle Hill. And so that that's an interesting point. You were talking about the fact that you were getting all your information mediated through social media or the news or something. Uh, I'm just kind of curious what surprised you or what you feel was sort of misrepresented. Well, um, I, yeah, I, I think it's very easy for people to to maybe uh, immediately get misinformation, especially here on the camp, at the camp. We, uh, yesterday, somebody had come up to the hill and said that uh, the police were raiding the camp, which turned out to maybe be an exaggeration. But um, but to be here firsthand and see, see how that kind of thing happens and to see the dynamics of uh, internally in the camp, you know, you have a lot of uh, native people here, you have a lot of non-native people here, you have a lot of native people here who are here just to pray and to be present and you have a lot of native people here who might want to have more direct action uh, with the situation but I, I, I'm really interested in just seeing the dynamics of, of how it all plays out because I think that would prepare us again like I say for the next time this, this happens wherever that might, that might be. And so what is the role of prayer here? Because, I mean, people have been talking about prayer a lot. And, you know, as part of the a lot of the actions, prayer has been so important. So what does that represent here? Well, I think I think one thing that's really that I think Western uh, concepts of what prayer is, is different from what our community considers prayer. Um, our spirituality is really more more so based in the land. So um, a lot of our a lot of our, I guess, um, uh, our, our deity, you know, that which we pray to is actually the universe. So our, our theology is a little bit more like Western science, where we recognize the fact that we're from this place and that we are a part of this place. So when we talk about prayer, we don't talk about going to a church and all of the dogmatic practices of Western, Western theology, but more so it's about stating an intention and saying that out loud and to the universe. What do you intend to do? Um, you know, Western eyes might call it affirmations or something along those lines, but that's what prayer is to Native communities, and it's it's sustained us um, through you know throughout very difficult times in our history, and and the fact that we're still here is kind of like, you know, existence is proof of resistance. You know, um, the U.S. government did everything it could to try to get rid of us, and we still remain, and we remain strong. So, um, and prayer is a, is a vessel that we all kind of recognize. So it is a way to unify, unify groups. Um, 
as, as best we can, you know, and it comes down from our elders, which is also another, another aspect, but there's all sorts of strange dynamics that happen in between there. And to say prayer is to like simplify it. And um, I think like native people have been simplified throughout West, Western history, but there's a lot of complexity here, you know, um, between different cultures. I mean, that's the thing, we're 500 plus nations. So prayer is a great way to, um, to create a, a unified kind of vision and unified intention to how to go forward. And, and in terms of what was it about this, you know, this pipeline, this action that seemed to have unified so many people? Because people have been telling me this is so unique to have this kind of gathering. So why, why now? Why this? Does uh, anyone have any ideas? I mean, I think last, I think last straw, you know, that whole, that whole idea. It's been, you know, 500 years within the country. The native people up here, um, the Lakota, the Mandan, the Hidatsa, we've been in contact with what, with, Western kind of expansion since the for like the last 200 years right and um, uh, we have like the land we're sitting on right now is considered Army Corps of Engineers land but this land through the pipeline where it's going through is originally um, it's Lakota territory sanctioned by the United States government in the uh, 1851 treaty and uh, and so now we wanted to use like basically all of the um, all of the subjects that have affected us, and we try to bind it all together just to say like, look, this has been going on forever. Um, American culture, Western culture, I mean, particularly American culture, they want to say things like "get over it." You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, I would love to. I would love to get over it, but look, it's still happening. And and like Raven said, they're putting in pipelines in just about every, I mean, this like extractive process seems to hit indigenous communities first around the country and around the world. Um, I, I heard a stat somewhere saying that the indigenous communities of the, of the globe is like 4% of the population. And yet we're on the front lines protecting like 80% of these natural uh, environments because we're connected to it, you know. We haven't. It hasn't been that long within our history where where we've um, been fed this idea that we are separate from from Earth. You know, um, that whole concept um, doesn't doesn't relate to us. We have we have, we struggle with that idea, and and even ownership of land we struggle with. So all all of this stuff that's happening is compounded. So you know the the. The pot was way too full and they turned on the heat, you know, so it's just boiling over and that's what's happening here. So one of the images that I see throughout the camp is the black snake and some of the imagery, but that seems to be also part of the cosmology and, and sort of like the faith systems of various uh, native groups, it seems. Can someone talk a little bit about that black snake and what it sort of represents and why it's being used yeah, this uh way? So the black snake for Lakota people, there is a, a prophecy, and this prophecy actually, it implicates all of us. Um, the prophecy says that if the black snake travels across the land of, of our people, the world will die. So this is why we want to kill the black snake. It's not that we're aggressive against the black snake. We want to save the planet. And, and uh, there's been all of these compounded prophecies throughout indigenous communities all over. I mean, uh, um, the folks from the so Central and South America have a prophecy of the eagle and the condor coming together. And um, all of our people follow eagle and all of their people follow condor. And they came here. You know what I'm saying? So there's all these compounded things um, of prophecy and of, of magic, you know. But I think there's something significant because I believe we, we are living in a time of legends. We're living in the time of heroes, you know? And um, What does that mean? Well, I, I would say 500 years from now, 
they're gonna tell stories of this time you know the time when 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 the earth was sick and tired and um the question is what side are you going to stand on are you going to fight for the earth are you going to be bystander and watch just watch you know or are you going to be the enemy you know and um and that's that's the line and the enemy right now is this extractive resource it's the it's the lack of accepting the fact that we are a part of this place. Um, I mean, something else that ties into this is just a, a philosophy, a theology within Native communities, which is the seven generation mentality. And so the seven generation breaks down that we exist in the center of that. And there are generations that we've never met um, into, the, into the past that are our elders that, that shared knowledge and also did exactly what we should do right now, which is sustain for the next generation's coming that we may never meet. So this creates a, a general mentality within within our communities that we're only borrowing this place and we're borrowing it from our our future, our legacy, you know? So it's like a way to exist in the planet without instant instant you know what i'm saying this desire of like you know something created by the united states with like rugged individualism and bootstrapping you know and like you can stand on your own two feet and i'm just saying like nobody ever stood on their own two feet like if we're not standing on the shoulders of giants we're standing on a pile of bones you know and we got to like think about that and so while we were talking a drone sort of whizzed by it sounded like i was wondering because you've been using drones in in uh recently and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about the role of drones that have been that used here at the camp yeah well let's see it's there's been a big evolution with all of that i think um i think drones have had a i mean geez i'm 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 not like completely savvy and, and everything that's been going on here i mean which is also part of the calling of of of, of coming here um being part of it and observing and and being engaged with it uh but what i've seen um through social media has been a lot of this drone footage and a lot of it's been utilized just to keep updated on construction on, on the process of, of construction on um getting that information out to to the, to the community to different communities um, to have that visual representation of it all. Um, and but you've also been using it artistically too, correct? Well, well so, 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 we, so, so that presence has been here for, uh, since the beginning. Okay. I mean, people, have, people have been here with, with drones for, for a long time, sort of as like drone journalism, um, which is a, a pretty incredible thing. But we came up here um, about a, in um, September, I believe, yeah. Um, with a drone with slightly different intentions um, working on a, on a kind of peripheral project well at least a project in my mind that existed kind of peripherally uh, politically to what's going on here um, and um, sort of viewing it all as in, in a kind of at least in my, in my view like a larger context of humans existing as landscape and sort of being as part of um, these larger larger systems of, of nature um, and uh we were filming um we were filming with the intentions of of composing to to landscape composing music and performance and story to landscape which is an older technology that a lot of cultures around the around the, around the globe practice 
um, including up here, including yeah. Lakota. Um, a lot of songs are, are used. The um, Mandan Hidatsa. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, so we have, traditionally, we the way we would create songs is, and if you're up here in this landscape, you'll see the, the hills roll, and, um, and there's not trees. So you see this very distinct horizon line as you spin in a 360-degree turn. And we would use that to create songs bound to location, bound to place. And um, so a lot of our ceremonial songs, and, and really just any song, searching for inspiration, you look at where you stand. You know what I'm saying? Every human being has an innate desire to belong. And this is a way to create music, which is part of culture, which is part of landscape, um, and connect it all together. So the film project that we're working on was specifically like, remove this human context and look at it from like a different context, a, a geological context, a land-based context, um, and see the difference between natural infrastructure, such as rivers and whatnot, that takes tens of thousands of years to create, and then man-made infrastructure that, you know, apparently only takes a couple of months, you know, to plow through. And, um, and you'll see that when nature wants to design the best possible way to get water from the mountains to the sea, it winds and it twists and it finds the easiest way throughout all of these places and also engages all of those places with more infrastructure. But man-made infrastructure, they just want to plow a straight line through A to B, you know? And so by singing these two different, we were calling them cause lines, um, you, you without saying this is wrong or this is right, by listening to the, the music that can be created by these two infrastructures changes your your perception of them, you know? So like, I can sing a song that has melody that is a river, or I can sing a song that is pipeline and is flat and static and not sustainable, you know? And so that's like the, that's the core of the film project that we're working on. Because we recognized, because of drone uh, footage, um, that, that technology was used here because the police force is hyper-aggressive. And so what and and they were for a while just like arresting media people left and right um, for being media people, you know, just completely against the First Amendment. So this whole scenario uh, with the drones was a way to film without being subject to that sort of aggression. Um, so you can get all of this information and see and share. And you almost had a drone sh shot down. Is that correct? Yeah, we did. So we came out here. Um, a little bit ignorant to to what has been what had been going on uh, specifically with drones, um, which I think was maybe to our advantage. Um, always working a little bit that way. Um, not always. I shouldn't say that. No, for always. myself. <laughs> we always work ignorant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Tanupa and I, we um, we went out on what what apparently was one of the, the at the point at that time in September one of the main access points for for where the construction was um, taking place then. And it was a weekend, so there weren't there weren't any folks out there, um, and so we were like, "Oh, this is a perfect road to get us right next to the to the to the pipeline to the construction." Um, so we took it and we stopped and we we got the drone up in the air, and um, I think we flew it for about five total minutes, um, starting from the ground, flying up, flying to the pipeline, and we started moving along the pipeline um, in this sort of in this fashion that we've designed specifically for this project, and maybe three minutes later there was gunshots at the drone um and i thought i'll just hold it for a little bit longer and get a little more of the shot and then I, I turned it around and brought it back to us and within i think about five total flying uh, minutes landed had it in my hands and we had like eight cops show up um and they're just uh, they're just aggressive you know they're just yeah. bullying us and 
the first cop came before the drone landed on the return and like the first thing he said to us without us mentioning that somebody was shooting at our drone at all he proceeds to say oh it's uh, pheasant hunting season so you got to be careful because uh, those farmers out there might shoot your drone and we were just like I was like dude it's harvest season's over so the farmer lives like 15 miles away from this field like he's not out there shooting at it and it doesn't look like a pheasant it doesn't sound like a pheasant right you know so and at that point I was like okay so right off the bat we're just going to be lying to each other you know what right. I'm saying like you're a police officer and you began with like a complete lie mm-hmm. and and then he proceeded to tell us that the easement road that we were driving on was private property to the center on both sides. And, I, and then I told the cop, I was like, look, I'm a landowner. I know that the easement goes the other way. And then he was like, yeah, well, it goes both ways. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so they were just like trying to put the fear in us, you know. And um, I do I do like we, we kind of started a whole process of filming this way um, where I was just using complete ignorance and my my lighter skin to um to my advantage and so we would uh we would just play really ignorant play tourist and i brought i bought like a paper map and so whenever we did further drone filming after that i would take out the the paper map put it on the hood pull out my cell phone and take the dumbest selfies of myself on the side of the road, you know, so that the cops, oh yeah, I was wearing a cowboy hat as well. And I tucked all of my hair up into the cowboy hat and, uh, and take stupid selfies and, and like the dumber, the better. And, and it was so that police officers or private security, um, companies for Dakota Access Pipeline, as they're driving up and down these roads, they could judge me from a quarter mile out. You know what I'm saying? Instead of pulling over and really inspecting everything. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. Dylan's sitting inside of the pickup flying a drone that we would launch from the bed of the truck so you couldn't really see it, you know, and have it buzzing around. And I would just stand up there, like jump, like the jumping selfie. That one's great (laughs) because you just look like an ass, you know? Right. And and it's sort of makes them somehow feel like you're not a threat no yeah. you're an right. idiot yeah. yeah yeah and like that's that's my power man i'm like i'm like be the fool like yeah. nobody's right. gonna nobody's gonna think you're a threat at all so it was interesting you mentioned about the pheasant hunting because it's like yesterday at the front line near turtle island i noticed that the the cops kept sort of saying these things that seemed ridiculous you know like sort of like why are you filling a bottle someone's like it's water and they're like that's considered a threat everything seemed to be whatever you did that was not just standing there seemed to be perceived as a threat i'm just wondering if anyone has any thoughts on that or like what that's Uh, yeah it's that is completely about justifying the level of aggression that they're using against peaceful people um they love using the term riot and charging people with inciting riot and stuff like that so it, what they've been doing quite successfully is intimidating the front line that wants to stand there and hold space and they create a barrier for the people behind them who are in prayer, prayerful ceremony. And um, But what they do is they, they'll, if you start making any sort of noise, if you get loud, if you, if you react to them at all, which it's, it's really difficult not to react to that amount of aggression in your face, then they can justify riot, which justifies shooting with with uh, rubber bullets, spraying with pepper spray, all of these sorts of things, which then amplifies that that fear and that tendency to even just like protect yourself. You know what I'm saying? So when you begin to retreat or you cry out because you've been shot with a rubber bullet, then that amplifies their response. You know what I'm saying? So then they can say, we're in a state of emergency. We need all of this money from the federal government. We need to, you know, protect our this asset. And this asset is a privately owned 
thing. You know what I'm saying? They're literally using taxpayers' money to protect a private industry. And and so now um, I'm kind of curious what, you know, this role of water protector, you know, because everyone's talking about water protectors. And I think this is for people outside of this context is a new term. I don't think people understand what that means. Does anyone have any thoughts of like what what the importance of being a water protector is? I mean, well, yeah, yeah, I think that Chinupa is... Like, I, think, I think, I mean, I know exactly what it is. Okay. It's not, the thing is, is it's not a new term. Okay. This is a very old term, and it's a term that perhaps a lot of us forgot, you know? And the reality of, of it is, is that we're all vessels. We all carry water, you know? Every single living thing carries water. And when we hold it, we hold it in protection, you right. know? So when we talk about water protectors, we're not talking about just where this pipeline's going across, just this lake, just the river that flows into the ocean, just the ocean. We're talking about water and how important that is as an asset. We call it our first medicine. It's the first medicine that we ever had was water. And it heals everybody and it heals itself. You know, as it evaporates, it gets rid of all of the toxins and stuff and it falls back down as rain. So water is this really incredible um, surrogate for how we should exist in this place. We're, we're mostly water. So water is still doing all of this within us, you know? So like, I know, I know a lot of people want to call it protest and, and, and that, and a lot of the communities that's coming in to help and stand in solidarity, um, recognize it from that as that term, but this is just cultural practice, you know? And that's, that's, I think, what is this defining line that has like gathered so many people from all of these different places. We're not going out there and protesting a pipeline. We're protecting water and in doing so protecting a way of life, a culture that has been, you know, crippled by this constant, constant threat of removing place. Got it. And so now here, I, I'm kind of curious in terms of, uh, I mean, here, I'm just going to ask point blank, like, okay. why, why are you here and why is this really important to you? All right. So I came here to, I brought a bunch of art stuff mm -hmm. to donate, to mm -hmm. give. Um, but I mainly came here to listen and, and just be a body and also to be a white shield for Chanupa mm -hmm. so he can go home to his voice. And um, I didn't come here with any intention of taking or any intention of ego like boosting you know i came here just to be and to be a vessel for whatever i'm needed for and because i i always go towards anything that's like human rights violations and I, there's just so many violations happening here i there was no way i couldn't come here and because of my white privilege i was able to be here and i own that and i accept that and i use my white privilege constantly to talk about issues affecting the world because it, it i don't see it as just affecting like the indigenous population or like the prison system I, I do a lot of work about that it doesn't just affect the people in prison which are mainly minorities it affects us all and the police murders uh, mainly against black people and mexican people which isn't reported as much it doesn't just affect those communities it affects all of us right like, my boy has to grow up in this world and I am going to do whatever I can with my platform and my privilege to, to bring attention towards that. Um, another thing, too, is like there was no media for a long time around this. So I came here to just be 
a, 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 I self-assigned myself to be a journalist, you know, to spread the word like in any way possible, because uh, I would be scrolling through looking for news on Standing Rock, and there would be none. And this is one of the most important things in this nation and in the world at this moment. Mm-hmm. I think that all eyes should be on this. This is this is big for indigenous rights and it's big for environmentalism because our environment is is being crippled and it's being contaminated and and we're we're moving forward at such a rate that that we're we're just going to burn it all out before our boys are old enough to 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 protect it themselves and chinupa said a really good point that that we're here fighting for this so our boys don't have to fight for it in the future you know and so why do you think there's so little media attention because you know it's kind of surprising even yesterday which is you know which is celebrated as thanksgiving in this country and and i i was kind of surprised that there wasn't more media here yeah Um, any thoughts of why well their um investors are are on the other side of the the river from us you know like the the oil industry like there that's deep money deep pockets and and everybody's wrapped up in it you, yeah. you can talk some more yeah i mean that's the thing is that we're not we're not fighting the u.s government here you know what i'm saying like you'll get a lot more attention if you're fighting the u.s government we're fighting a corporate power you know what i'm saying and that corporate power is invested in the u.s government and it's invested in media and we we've seen what like national news does you know just with this election that went like there's so much distraction so much poor information because they're all hedging their bets in one direction or the other you know and the thing is is that oil's the house right now you know what i'm saying oil convinced us that it's the house and that it needs everything um it need oil is all about consumption it's all about burning up your past you know what i'm saying like there's so much symbolism in its industry um and it's and it's totally tied into what we call american culture today you know what i'm saying and really global i mean try to look at you know count how many wars there are out there right now and how many of them are tied to oil you know what i'm saying so that's what we're up against right now so it's I'm not at all surprised that major media outlets aren't covering it as much as they should. They had wonderful distractions with the election. Um, they have wonderful distractions with Donald Trump as our president. All of these things are just distraction, you know? And it's saying, you know, it's the magician shaking his right hand as his left hand is pulling out a rabbit, you know? Yeah. And that's what's going on. This is the rabbit right now. They're trying to jerk the rabbit out. So I, I want to ask you about the Mirror Shield project, mm. because that seems to have captured people's imagination a little bit. Um, and I'm kind of curious where that came from, if you could talk a little bit about that, but also why you think people are, are really into this idea. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I originally saw it in the Ukraine um, during the civil right there. The, um, I saw people holding mirrors up to the, to the riot police, and I saw how effective it was um, as, a, as a symbol. But um, that... Once again, this is the thing. There's a, there's a lot of protest that happens here, but the way that people protest in cities, you know, where where there's going to be a lot of people witnessing it and whatnot, does not happen in the plains. You know what I'm saying? Like 
we're isolated. We're in a quiet place. If you yell, if you make any sort of noise out here, there's not bystanders who are not partisan one way or the other. You know what I'm saying? It can't be judged from that sort of way. So we had to come up with like a different way to protest um, in, in this situation because the police are ruthless. You know what I'm saying? They're absolutely ruthless in their practices. I mean, you saw Sunday night, they were spraying people with water and it was 20 degrees outside. Like that is, that's threat to life, you know? And, um, and they don't, because there's nobody to witness it, because both sides, one side says this, the other side says that, um, and there's no neutral party, you know? And this is why we were struggling so much with trying to get as much media out there, because we need neutral party to see how absurd it is, you know? And that expose the lies, yeah, you know? That's because a, that's one thing that, like, really shocked me, was, like, everybody's quoting the police, but there's, the drones have been really good at capturing these like exaggerated lies by the police that are just blatant lies of like the fires being started by the by the indigenous like water protectors like there's video footage of of the grenades going off starting fires and then the protesters extinguishing the fires while the water's being shot on people standing there right and they they were saying that they were only shooting water to I mean they said many things they they said that they weren't shooting fire they weren't shooting water to one then the other one, they said they were only shooting water to extinguish fires set by the protesters. And there's just so many lies going around that it, that was another reason I wanted to be here was to help expose the lies. Right. Yeah. So uh, how many of you were here on Sunday or witnessed any of them? Any of them? No. None okay. Of them. okay. We, we were en route. Um, okay. And it was just like torturous to watch because we were able to, the only media source covering it is Facebook Live. And so we were able to watch the the atrocities that were going down, and it, it was in it was, real time. Yeah, and you know yeah. you see it you see it happen in real time, and then and the other thing is like so I'm from up here, so it's like coming home. You know what I'm saying? It hasn't been like you know this big movement. I'm just like I gotta protect my home. Like I used to play in that river, and I don't want to. I want that for my children. You know, but you start to recognize people. You know what I'm saying? Like even people from outside have been here for a long time. You see these people and you you build like a an affinity towards them. They're they're helping protect my home, you know? And so when you see those people getting shot and maimed and brutalized live it's it's really hard i mean it definitely um we were supposed to leave a day after that and we were just mm -hmm. like no we gotta just go and it changed our our right. whole dynamic yeah. of our plan and everything to yeah. come and uh raven i wanted to ask you a little bit about your kind of what you think these kinds of experiences might contribute to your art making or other things like how do you sort of um see these melding like your these different kinds of worlds and these different aspects of your life i mean how would you how do you view it in yourself well um again i i think the the starting point is is to observe you know and and, and view the different dynamics social dynamics uh you know that's that's happening in this what's interesting to me is what is what's happening in this camp because it it seeks to be a, a microcosm of of larger global community and uh the way that people will decide to confront this snake uh is is going to be important and i you know I, I see different kinds of things i see i see people trying to be helpful but maybe uh not always recognizing the 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 indigenous people who are from here and um you know they're they're trying to do their best but at the same time i think uh I think I think this is being the biggest, uh, most recent one of these kinds of 
actions that I think it's probably still a very young, uh, 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 like a, a, a child learning how to confront these these kind of monsters that we're up against in the 21st century. So as I was saying earlier, I th- this won't be the last one for sure. And I think I think it's important for the the uh, the indigenous leaders here to to observe and 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 see how we might you know do approach the next one you know how people would lead uh you know here we, there's a lot of talk about elders taking charge but um at the same time they're not always always present or, or visible so i think i think uh you know for myself to to make artwork here it's it's it, it a lot of it's coming about and evolving from discussions we've had this group here uh us four is uh is the power that we have in in these voices that we're emitting out so um yesterday you had you had people going and yelling at the cops you know go home and you know and and at the same time then there were instances where you just heard song or or even just silence and that those were the powerful moments because the the sheriffs you know the sheriffs and the police up there the national guard they didn't know how to respond to silence you know mm. so it becomes a feedback loop when you start yelling and uh you know even signs sometimes they you know i mean they can be used but at the same time it's when when you, it's just people standing there all people then then the police don't know what to do and we there was evidence of that yesterday at the end of the action where there you everybody went into a circle and you could almost feel the the sheriffs wanting to do the same, and they had a perfect opportunity because they're up on top of this round plateau on the yeah. top of Turtle Hill. <laughs> they almost naturally, you could see them, yeah. And and uh, you know that's kind of their they they couldn't they couldn't huddle without replicating the circle that was happening on the on the ground. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. You're talking about almost this mirroring that happens mm. between the people, the action, and then the the cops which is kind of ties into the mirror shields and this whole idea of like mirroring that kind of occurs you know what this is a good so when we were approaching them yesterday they kept on on calling out every one of our actions as aggressive and it was funny because they were saying like oh you're wearing ballistic vests why 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 that's an aggressive action and or you're wearing this or that and that's an aggressive action and it's just like we are mirroring you you know like we, we you came at us so hard that we have to protect ourselves so we can be peaceful and not die in the process you know but they're everything that we would do they would say that's an aggressive action yeah what did they say uh uh Building a bridge is not a peaceful action, which is like the craziest contradiction. Because, like, dude, we should be building bridges. Like, we should be connecting these things and seeing how we can relate to each other. You know, you can't shake hands with somebody on the other side of the river unless you build a bridge, man. Yeah. And that, like, that's it's so crazy, you know. But that guy who speaks on that thing, he keeps like I mean, he must be like a specialist at this sort of thing because he talks in this very like he's like. Anybody who's recording it, anybody who's uh, looking at it, the voice that's coming out of their side, you know what I'm saying, is this calm, metered, and sometimes funny, like yeah. like well, voice, and 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 yet, and yet, he is not the the mind of the whole. You know what I'm saying? Like there is a hive mind behind yeah. that that is aggressive. You know, yeah. that's standing there with shotguns and and pepper spray and hoses. You know, Although and you could feel you could feel their just itch 
to to just get it over to the point. They like they, they wanted it. Like they were so ready, and they were just geared up. They had like belts of of restraining grips, and like they were they were hungry for it. They had their their little fire extinguisher things of pepper spray. Just like it was crazy. Just. staring into that void and i also saw that they were sort of occasionally hosing the trees as if like they they were were trying trying to to hit some of the people too but we um they were trying to hit the there was three guys um holding up a sign with their backs towards them and they were they were like scooting out as far as they could to try to like get over to 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 squirt them it was so because they didn't have their high-powered water cannon right they must have just forgot it or something (laughs) and so they were trying to shoot with his little hose like they were trying their best yeah, if you look at some of the drone footage, they have these balloon things that they fill up with water. So they bring water to the to fight the water protectors. Yeah. Like, this is just the irony that's created in this whole thing. Yeah. Um, they want to use other things, you know what I'm saying? But water in freezing temperatures is a really effective deterrent, yeah, you know? Right. And they kept saying, like, we're going to start with water. We're going to start with water. And, we're just, and then everybody would <laughs> respond, water is life. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to ask each of you what you think the role of art in a place like this is, in in an action like this is. And I mean, this are obviously very personal interpretations, but I'd like to ask each of you if that's all right. I think think it's always been ingrained in, I I mean, I'll speak from my own perspective on on a lot of the cultures that we come from, but it's always been ingrained within, I mean, like Janupa was saying, it's a very holistic way of being um and it's not about it's not protesting i mean it's it's sort of being existing into these larger systems um art making i think has always been a practice that has been very ingrained into all that into a identity into um acknowledgement of land and of place and of language um and uh i mean those are all those are all art practices and so it all stems it all stems out of that very simply um, and I think what we're doing is is a continuation and evolution of of that same thing. I mean, with our conversations and with our paints and with our sculptures, um, we're all carrying ourselves in an artful way here. Mm-hmm. Everybody. I mean, um, the songs that are sung in prayer yesterday, gorgeous, just just in- incredible. Um, I mean, all of it. The signs, the people. Um, the, the formations, the, the, the prayer circles, the conversations, it's all being done in a very artful manner. Um, and I think we're all showing up and, and um, having conversations that I think people have always had in these landscapes, but we're doing it in, in I don't know, maybe a slightly different material manner now um, because of what we have access to um, because, of, because of the industrial world that we live in. I mean, the paints that we've access to and the materials, um, and we're sort of recycling all of that in a way that... Um, <laughs> you hear a helicopter overhead? Is that oh, what that is? Yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. They, they, fly, they fly these planes in circles, literally in circles, over the camp all day, all day yeah, long. Night, yeah. I think this one is a private one owned by DAPL. This sounds like a helicopter that they, they uh, the oil company actually like hires this guy to fly around and do surveillance stuff. Um, but like back to the art thing, like that's absolutely true. Um, there's no deviation. 
you know, within, I mean, and I think if we go back far enough within every single culture in the world, you know what I'm saying? Like art didn't develop out of a vacuum, you know what I'm saying? It developed as a part of culture. It developed as a part of human existence. You know, we learned to speak and then we learned to sing. And then we, you know, and before that we found pigments and we learned to paint, you know what I'm saying? Like we've always tried to express ourselves and that's what art is, is a way to express yourself that doesn't limit you as an individual to tell that story. You create an object, you create a painting, you create a song that you share, and then suddenly it's able to reach way more people. And that's that's the power of art, you know? So, and then, you know, once again, there's like a very Western kind of like perspective of separation and isolation and like, you know, creating little areas for all of this stuff. But I think as like a human species, we've always used it. So it's not like a, it's not like anything new, um, but it's recognizably powerful. Yeah, I, um, Coming here, I didn't know really what to expect. I, I brought this large banner that I had painted with a friend in Portland and um, just to give. But then I started seeing art being used as this big unifier. Um, like there's patches that everybody's putting on their backs, which creates like unity and kind of uniform mm-hmm. um, and solidarity. Like a lot of like the art is being used almost in a protective manner like because they would be carrying banners across the line and holding it up but almost as a shield too um, from the water cannons and um and then they had the the banners just kind of as a as a front for the the police to be able to stare at you know normally you're making banners to to carry in a protest so the city can see it but there's no city here to see it you know it's just it's a direct message to the oppressor and uh, so art is being used in many like strong ways like there's flags being made and um, it's really beautiful seeing how it's going down and what do you think the role of art is in this kind of uh, action well um, I think it's really complicated I think um, the impulse for any artist even even all of us would be to, to have our art reinforce this binary battle that's happening you know us against them the good guys and the bad guys but i don't think it's i don't know if that's our role all the time i think it's to uh to make work that might speak to the broader situation that's happening and if that requires us to be critical within our work even of ourselves uh that might be that might be something that the art can can speak to while at the same time acting as a unifier so I think I, there's a lot of work to be done. Like, I, like I'm saying, this isn't going to end with Standing Rock. It's going to happen again somewhere else. It's going to happen all over this country. And I think, um, I think part of the work that we're doing isn't just to say there's you know, this side versus that side. I think with this many people, you, there's more organization that has to happen and more of a critical eye and more indigenous leadership towards you know with the white allies to say you know maybe we're doing this wrong maybe we don't need to be shouting you know maybe we need to be silent with reflective shields Uh, you know so those there's more power i think that hasn't been examined and i think the artists can can let people see you know these these other kinds of powers that are existing out here on the landscape so you're also part of the art collective post commodity and there was a project you did you guys did recently that sort of is what i like to call maybe the pressure points in the landscape like in this country can you talk a little bit about that 
Yes, uh, Post Commodity recently, uh, well actually a, a year ago, uh, October of last year, uh, put up a, a four-day installation called the Repellent Fence. And what that was was 26 10-foot diameter balloons uh, running across two miles across the U.S.-Mexico border. And what that what that sought to do was was suture two communities, uh, a community on the Arizona side and a community on Sonora, uh, Mexico side, uh, that had been split up by the by the U.S.-Mexico wall. And uh, so a lot of our work uh, recently has has been uh, speaking about these issues that are confronting these these communities, which which we see them also as indigenous communities, you know. Um, which have been interrupted by these man-made structures. So not too, you know, not too different than what's happening right here in Standing Rock. But, um, but you know, it's led to other kinds of projects. The more we're down there, the more we see other kinds of of ways that the uh, the these structures have have interfered with people, with with uh, you know. And for us, post commodity, it, it's it's really we we first come to it thinking about the indigenous people who are who are affected by it. Um, but same thing, it's it's another black snake down there, and um, and uh, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of these. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's very very uh it's a very good time to make art about these these places and it's a it's a great time to do site specific work and i think that's another reason for for artists to go out into the field you have a, even though more and more we have we have access to to seeing these things on youtube or live streams um i, I don't know if one can make such site specific work without embedding yourself into these places so what do you think uh what do you think people don't know about what's going on here that they should know. You know, I mean, there's a lot of perceptions of what are going on. And I have to say, even myself, being here is very different and has totally changed my idea of what this is. Are there any thoughts in terms of that? I, I, one, I think one initial one for me is just how, I mean, just how beautiful it is, really. Um, I, I, I do think about how leaving here, um, at least in, in the first time that I came here and going back to where I was coming from, um, and, and everybody wants to know how, you know how it was, what was it like, what's going on out there, or family members want to know, and, and I feel like the first thing I want to say is just it feels like home, it feels, it's gorgeous, it feels like prayer, it feels like peace, um, it's, and, and, and that's hard because that's, for one, it's not something that, it's not a direct message that's being, it's not present on like Facebook, you know, people aren't saying this is, this is all peaceful, it's all beautiful, because that wouldn't quite be the right message, right. Yeah. because it's not, it because it's weird, complex, right? yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there's layers to it all, yeah. um, I mean, it's also aggressive, and it's hostile, and it's terrifying, and it's it's difficult, but, I, but for me, personally, I just feel like the first layer that I would want to communicate is that it's it's beautiful, it's calm, it's peaceful, it's nourishing, I feel fed, I feel full, like a like a like an enlivened, full human being, and, yeah. and, and have have had to eat less than you ever have in your day to day life. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think it's. I think what's going on here is that we live in a society that numbs everything and gives us everything in little tiny bits and pieces and as fast as possible, you know? And I know the media just loves like struggle porn, you know what I'm saying? Like, just like, oh, where does it hurt? What's the worst thing, you know? Um, but I, what I don't think they realize is that we're feeling everything, 
you know and in, in your day-to-day life you don't get to go to those like levels of of like sadness and levels of joy you know what i'm saying we ride we ride a really um shallow wave right in the center of everything because we're so sheltered by all of this stuff but you come out here you live outside you we just made like eggs that were gray in a, in a cast iron frying pan and they were the best eggs we ever had and i was joking around i was like if i made those at home and you guys were stay, staying with me you'd be like dude where did you learn to cook you know but it was delicious you know and i think all of that is because everything is it is magnified you know and i think a lot of um what raven was saying like this this idea of um recognizing the 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 unity and the thread that ties everything together versus that line that separates everything you know is absolutely important and i think i think as artists and and uh and makers there's something really powerful that happens when um the work's not completed until it's observed you know and the observer gets to filter it through their own all of their own experiences you know what i'm saying so suddenly it has it has a conversation that perhaps you know, wasn't intended by the maker, but is relevant to the conversation. Yeah, uh, the first thing that I noticed coming in that that was a big revelation. I had many revelations, but the first one was the most obvious. It was the highway we were driving on to get to camp, and realizing that that was the highway that they had shut down, and that they were blockading, so the the water protectors can't shut down the drill, and that's the main artery to get to the closest hospital. And that was just shocking to me. Like, how do you shut down a public highway in, in protection of an oil company? Like, that, that is illegal. I mean, they, they should be f- fighting the oil company for shutting down this, this main highway, an artery, a, a way of, like, getting people to and from a hospital, getting people to and from work. Um, that was just, that I couldn't believe that that, that revelation, and it, it's kind of hard to, to to describe that over any kind of media, like how how abrasive that is. Um, and then more revelations that I had was like walking around here. It's it's it, the gathering here is unlike anything I've ever seen before because you're surrounded by people that came here out of goodwill and good intention. So you're surrounded by one hundred percent good people that are here to do good to try to do good for this and that that feeling when that like kind of sunk in on me was beautiful and then headed to a direct action with those said people facing these police that are armed to the teeth that i started fearing for all these good people i just like i started crying in march in the silent march that we were taking because i didn't want these people to be hurt because these are not violent people these are not bad intention people that they're being that the police are are calling them and that lie is that's one of the most sickening is that they're calling us aggressors that they're calling us like whatever negative terms they're they're going around telling people to not even curse at the police they don't want them to be throwing hateful words at the police that's how good this community is as they're trying to protect even the police from getting hatred like spewn at them and they're sitting there on on loudspeakers saying we love you over there to the police and um so all of these things like compounded is just like it's overwhelming oh and it's colder here than it looks (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, the same, the same that Jesse just said. I think um, what you can't see from any live stream or f photograph is just the amount of people that are here. Um, there are thousands of people here and thousands of people here who are respecting each other. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest, I was expecting like a Burning Man situation with some of the allies, but it, I haven't really seen that. You know, I, I've, I've seen people follow uh, the Hong Papa Lakota uh, people here and say, you know, requesting no profanity, for instance. So it's a good example. And, and people, yeah, you know, whereas uh, in the past they might have gone out and done Occupy whatever and, and been cussing the whole time. Here it's a completely different uh, experience that something I've never even experienced of people being that many people uh, confronting, you know, the, the sheriff's department and, um, and, and, yeah, there might be some yelling and screaming, but uh, very more, very much more spiritual than I've ever seen that group of uh, amount of people be. You know, uh, at the same time being uh, um, concerned, of course, and and I, I don't know, I don't know if there's a word for it. It's not protest. It's it's just confronting, confronting back or defending, uh, and um, and yeah, it's it's really cold here, um, but it's also. Also, just the amount of people. There, there's so many people here that uh, one could come and, and choose how they want to to confront. You know, one one could go over to one camp and they might have one way of doing it. Uh, another camp might have, you know, be completely uh, loving. <laughs> I love you, <laughs> Sheriff's Department. Uh, but no matter which, where you are in this camp, uh, the thing that strikes me is is by about 10 o'clock or so all you hear is singing and uh all different kinds of songs from up on top of the hill so so for me that's uh you know that kind of brings it all together and then you fall asleep uh, in the cold yeah. <laughs> you know it was a, i was really taken aback surprised pleasantly surprised when i arrived i felt immediately embraced and by people who had never met me had no idea what I was doing. They didn't know what I, you know, why I'm here. And it was at various camps. And I thought even the person that greeted me. And I'm just wondering where that energy comes from because I've never, I've never quite felt that way. Particularly coming to this, you know, camp where there are thousands of people, and all of a sudden somehow everyone is being embraced one by one. Yeah. Where does that energy come from? That's that's pretty traditional. I mean, we're we're in the situation in the United States because of that, you know, indigenous populations. Um, we have like a kind of a root concept within our own small bands and communities that you're only as strong as your weakest, you know? And so there isn't the mentality of, of um, hoarding things. Like if you had a bunch of stuff and there was somebody hungry, you were a monster. You were disgusting. You know what I'm saying? So that that has carried over. It hasn't been that long that we haven't lived that way. You know what I'm saying? Our grandparents parents, you know, were alive during that time. And they taught our grandparents and our grandparents taught our parents and our parents taught it to us. That's what we're talking about. You know, a couple generations, you know. And so that still, that still exists within us, like just genetic memory. And because this camp has only kind of like amplified within the last, you know, month, I would say, as far as population goes, everybody who comes in gets greeted and shown that way. And it really talks about the power of social capital. You know what I'm saying? It really talks about the power of, of 
um, being, if you, you can only really affect what you can touch, you know what I'm saying? And here everybody's got to touch at some point. There's so many bottlenecks where everything comes together at one. And when you're greeted in that fashion, and then you go and set up camp, you're already acclimated to this idea of like, oh yeah, I could just be good. I don't have to posture. I don't have to puff, you know, I can just be kind and, and something really nice happens. So as the camp grows, because it has to come through that bottleneck and it's initial like welcome, um, I think they, you know, you know, regardless of where you come from, you know, that starts to feed. And then when somebody sets up camp right next to you, do you have enough eggs this morning? We've got some extra eggs. You need a fork. You know what I'm saying? Like we actually have coals going. You can cook right here. That whole thing where it's like I can reach my little group that's surrounding me right now. We're all so compacted in here that that ripples out all the way across, you know? So the whole thing becomes this like warm greeting kind of thing. And it's infectious too. Yeah. Like, like once it starts happening to you, you you just want to, to give it back. You yeah. know, like I I was watching the direct action training, and this stranger came up, tapped on my shoulder, and and just handed me a handful of stuff. He's like, I'm leaving. Get this to whoever and pass it on. You know, and I was like, okay, great. You know, like here, and that that's just I'm gonna leave with nothing. You know, I'm gonna leave all of my protective gear and all of my wool socks and like it's just you just want to give because everybody around you is is here for under good intentions and it it's so you you want to spread the love you know it's it's really amazing yeah it's easier yeah. that's the thing that's that's really i mean we look at the society we look at and it takes a lot of effort to be terrible to each other you know what i'm saying like it's just it's a lot of work to yeah. be terrible you know you got to build fences you got to build the fences into walls you got to put wire on top of those walls there's just this constant like maintenance of being terrible you know but being kind is so incredibly easy yeah. you like you can do it once yeah. and then all of a sudden you're just doing it autopilot you know and I, I think that's like that's one of the messages I think from these like communities that they want to share with everybody else because also a part of that prophecy of the black snake is that it comes to a point that it's our responsibility um, and, and also the eagle and the contour, condor prophecy is that it comes to a point that we need to teach the rest of the world you know mm -hmm. and we can do it because it's easy mm -hmm. because it's incredibly easy and even if we don't have the resources that these large conglomerates have um what we're sharing is something that everybody already has right. you know what i'm saying and all we got to do is just like tickle a switch you know and it's like oh uh, there yeah. you go yeah i feel like this is like a school for how to be a better human like straight up like i'm gonna leave here such a better human that i came here as and it's phenomenal i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna say hi to all my neighbors you know and i'm gonna I'm going to offer them whatever. And uh, this is a beautiful school. Everybody come to school. <laughs> You're late. <laughs> so I, I, um, as a final question, I want to ask each of you what your hope is for this. For what's your hope here? Start with Chinupa. Yeah. Chinupa. We have no hope. We're doing you know what I'm saying? Like that's, I was talking to the BBC the other day and they keep bringing up these, you know, conversations of hope and like hope is such an empty thing. Hope, you can, you can hope and you've completed your task. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We're not here hoping, you know, everybody, if you're at home and you're watching it on Facebook, you're hoping. But if every single person here 
they're actually not hoping anymore. They're actively trying to make it better. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that's a message that I would like to share with everybody. Actively try to make the community that you're in better. You know what I'm saying? Give, give up on hope. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's beautiful. It's nice to have. And it's, it's a lovely concept and all of that. But really, like, making effort is incredible. You know what I'm saying? And really making effort with no freaking hope at all is one of the most beautiful things that there is, you know? That's like bravery, you know? Um, and that's what I think we're doing here, you know? This, yeah. 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 Great. Is there anything anybody wants to add before we wrap up? Uh, well, maybe to answer the hope question, I, I can't answer it better than Chinupa, but um, as far as maybe what, what people can do, um, my hope would be that that there's just more truth there's not any exaggeration of what's happening there's just uh, as much as we can say facts of of what's happening because if if things if we start skewing things saying that um i don't know they're raiding the camp or they're spraying chemtrails on us or something it's it doesn't do any good so i'm that again that was one of my reasons for coming up yeah and then uh a lot of people out there probably ask what, what can they do to help or you know can I send this old uh, winter jacket I have up there or whatever but I, I don't know if any of that is important as finding a way to send a young native person up here so to experience it themselves you have a lot of young native youth all over this country who maybe haven't traveled more than a hundred miles from where they live and to give them an opportunity to come up here and be with other indigenous people uh, would change their life yeah. and it, it would set it up f because they'll be doing the next battle whenever that comes yeah yes sponsor yeah, you can sponsor people um look out reach out try to sponsor somebody you can just give them money and a tent and a blanket and send them out here um i have a message for uh president obama <laughs> it's jesse hazlett from buzzfeed you might have seen me um you should end your legacy on a on a high note and do something about this, man. You're running out of time. Like you're not too late, but you're yeah, you are too late. But get on it. We're waiting for you. Great. Thank you uh, for sharing your experiences and for talking to us. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. Soon after I finished my interviews on Friday, November twenty fifth. The Standing Rock Tribe announced that the Army Corps was planning to close public access to Osheti Sakawan Camp. This weekend, over a thousand Native American veterans are expected to converge at Standing Rock. The world will be watching as authorities say they will be ticketing and arresting the water protectors and their allies, and potentially the veterans, in order to move them all on the other side of the Cannonball River in an Orwellian-sounding free speech zone. The truth is, no one knows what's coming next. Visit hyperallergic.com for updates and the latest news about the story. I'm Rog Vartanian, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Our executive producer and editor is Giseli Rigatau. Our publisher is Vikan Gaikian, and Garen Gaikian is the maestro behind our theme music. Thanks for listening. 